Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Jay Calvert. I'm here today to speak to my trusted colleague and COVID-19 free co-host, Dr. Millicent Ravello. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Still, I'm still COVID-19 free. You sure are. In fact, you are confirmed COVID-19 free. <laughs> I am happy to be that. <laughs> but we're going to talk today about getting back to elective surgery and how to do it in the presence of a pandemic of this coronavirus. Right. So the last time we spoke about coronavirus was right when it was starting out. And it was all about how to stay safe, how to stay safe, how to take care of yourself. And now we are sort of coming over that peak. And we're now we're getting back into how do we start resuming normal life, which for us is surgery, because that's what we do. That is what we do. That's what we do. And how do we safely resume surgery, which is not really just a topic for us. But I mean, it's a topic that's being talked about nationwide at all levels of government, because it's a very important part of what we do as a country and what we do as people. Absolutely. And this is a... If, if I have one take-home message about this whole podcast, it's that information is powerful in keeping yourself and the surgery team safe. Absolutely, which is what's so tricky about this whole coronavirus pandemic is that information seems to change on a minute-to-minute basis, which makes things very confusing. But I do think that we have learned a lot over the past month or so. And all of the organizations that we are part of, all of our societies, all of the hospitals are really coming to a pretty unified consensus as to how best to proceed with keeping people safe while doing surgery. Right. And we need to do surgery. I mean, uh, people are going to need their gallbladders out. They're going to need their colons taken out. They're going to need their facelifts and nose jobs and their backs fused. These things can't wait forever. So with that, here we go. What I think is going to be the the most reliable way of getting somebody to the operating room without them having a coronavirus in their body is their history and their symptomatology. Like that is to say where they've been, who they've been with, and what's going on with their physical fitness and what and their health at the time that they're beginning the process of getting into surgery. Right. And so a lot of the, I think we have to sort of specify too what kind of surgeries we're talking about because there are surgeries that are major and happen in hospitals. And then there are other ones that happen more electively in outpatient surgery centers. Absolutely. And two different things. Two different things. Some of the more major surgeries obviously can't wait. And that's a whole different setup and, and topic of discussion. What we are talking about are otherwise healthy patients that are choosing to have an elective surgery, whether that's for a medically indicated reason, like a hernia that's been there for a little while, or something purely elective, like a cosmetic surgery. So I think it's important to talk about what kind of patients are good candidates for surgery right now and what kind of surgeries. Yeah, I mean, for sure, if you are in the at-risk population where COVID-19 can really take its toll on you, in other words, elderly in the you know late 60s, 70s, 80s, that puts you at higher risk. If you uh, have other medical problems, mm-hmm. uh, systemic illnesses, things that could really put you at risk, obviously if it's a surgery that you don't need to do, 
maybe you want to hang maybe hold you off should wait <laughs> but, yeah but there's some stuff people are going to want to do i mean people want to get joint replacements i mean a joint replacement kind of can wait right but right you want to do it so you're going to do it um just like a facelift just like an, a rhinoplasty a nose job just like whatever else it is that's on your mind people are going to want to do these things and i think the key is going to be to know where you've been who you've been with and do you have a higher risk of having coronavirus at the time you're going to surgery. And I think that's certainly very important to know because once you've established that you're going to have surgery and that you're a good candidate for it, that is the looming question. Do you have coronavirus? And I think the question for patients is, number one, do I have it going into surgery? And number two, am I going to get it because I have surgery? And those are two different topics. And the reason we talk about patients having coronavirus going into surgery is because it has a couple of different manifestations or problems. Number one, there's the risk to everyone in the OR, everyone that's taking care of the patient, should the patient come in with asymptomatic or unknown coronavirus. And that's because during surgery, during intubation, when they are putting that breathing tube down you, that is the highest risk moment for aerosolizing the coronavirus into the air. So everyone in the OR is exposed at that time. So that is number reason, reason number one, we want to make sure patients don't have coronavirus before surgery. Number two is that if they do have coronavirus and undergo surgery, they are at a much higher risk of having a more severe outcome from the coronavirus. For sure. I mean, the surgery itself lowers your immune system's ability to fight right. infection. We right. know that because it's a big hit. If you take somebody, just put them to sleep and wake them up from general anesthesia for an hour, it, it's enough to, to impact their ability to fight yes. infection. The other thing is the ventilators taking that coronavirus that's in their nasopharynx and blowing it down into their, right. their lungs, right. which is why I've kind of had an issue with all these ventilators everybody wants. But mm -hmm. obviously, if you have it up in your upper respiratory and we blow it down in your lungs, you're going to get a lot sicker. Yeah. And the outcomes from people going to surgery who are infected with coronavirus are not good. And no. so we don't want to take somebody to surgery if they have a chance of having the coronavirus. It doesn't mean that that's not going to happen. There is, there is going to be somebody who's asymptomatic who gets a test, and that's the other part we're going to talk about now is the testing, and the test doesn't pick it up, and they're going to wind up in surgery. And so the best way in my book is going to be that I haven't been around anybody with COVID-19. I haven't been going to the grocery store. I haven't been doing the things that could put me at risk, and I've isolated prior to my procedure right. and right. I, I would like lock myself in the closet if I were having surgery yeah and just be like I'll be out when it's time for my operation let right. me know you right know? and so that sort of brings us to well how do you know how do you know if someone's coming in f with coronavirus because we know that 25% of patients with coronavirus are asymptomatic so there is a solid chance that you may have it and never know it so how do you know or how can you most able rule out that someone has coronavirus. And I think that's where we're going to go next with our, our testing. Let's talk about testing. Right. So I think there are two, two ways to test. There's the RT-PCR, which is reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction test, which is a fancy way of saying we're going to actually test for the gene, the genome of the, the actual DNA, in this case, it's RNA, right. of the virus. Like, do you have virus in you right. by genetic testing? That's the most specific and sensitive way to know. 
And that's the thing that I think we're going to do the most and do that five days before uh, surgery so that can we, we can get the result. And it can either be done with saliva or with a nasal swab. And then the other part is to check for antibodies to the virus, which there is IgG, meaning you've had the virus and you probably aren't infected now and you are immune, or you have IgM, which means you're actively fighting an infection with the virus. And those are the three kind of markers that we can use to test for this coronavirus. And the whole topic of testing is a huge topic, and I think there's a lot of confusion about it because there are so many tests, and so many of them, we don't know for sure how reliable that is. That's been the whole problem with rolling out testing because there are a lot of labs out there that have tests, but a lot of them haven't been validated, and so we don't know how accurate they are. We do know that the antibody tests are not as great at picking up the virus, whether you've had it, whether you currently have it. And so a lot of hospitals, a lot of places are kind of shying away from the antibody test. It's great to maybe test a whole community just to see who's out there that's had it and get some community numbers. But in terms of being really specific about whether this patient has it or had it, it's not that great. So really it's the RT-PCR tests that I think are going to give the most benefit in actively diagnosing patients. The problem there is that they're also kind of hard to get. So that's where we're stuck. We know we need to do the testing, but how do we get the testing? And a lot of the bigger hospitals are starting to roll out programs where they do provide the RT-PCR testing, but it's hard to get even at the big hospitals. Um, And then some of the tests that we have available, you know, there are some send-off with the salivas that we've been doing, um, which have some promise as well. So The recommendations from all of our societies and from the government agencies are basically do what you can with what resources you have available to rule out the presence of coronavirus, knowing that testing is not going to be available to every practitioner that wants it. Right. And it's not not only is it not available, but it's not the the best and at this time, the best way to really know that you're taking somebody to surgery who does not have coronavirus. That's why for me, it's more about like, tell me who you've been hanging out with. You know, have you been like sneaking off to, you know, speakeasy bars in the middle of the night? If you have, then don't have surgery. Where are those? I know. I do want to know where they are too, because I'm going. Um, But no, but I mean, it's the truth. It's like, you have to go by history because, and, and it's not, look, if somebody does come in with coronavirus and, and it sprays the entire staff, I, I can tell you, that's not my big concern. My concern is the patient getting Absolutely. that stuff blown down into Absolutely. their lungs. Absolutely. That, is my that concern could kill too. them. Yeah, for you sure. You know, I'll get over it. You know, maybe I won't, but it, the, the odds certainly say that I will. And same with everybody else. The odds are that our coronavirus is not a lethal virus for the very, very vast majority of human beings. Yeah. For some individual people, it, it's it's a death sentence and sure. it's a disaster. We do not want to discount that, nor do we want to downplay that, because it's the people in surgery, if they are getting it blown down into their lungs, they get very sick. Right. And there have been some fatalities, but again, it's it's been more that it makes you way sicker than you would have if you just kind of went through your coronavirus yeah. Illness, which yeah. it, for most people is uneventful. It's the patient on the table that's the most at risk in the operating yes. room, for sure. And so I think that you are spot on with the self-quarantining because, yes, we can do the tests if we have them available, um, realizing they're not always going to be reliable. And so the other thing that the patients have to do is 
you know, take it upon themselves to really buy into their surgery outcome and their own health and safety and just stay home. I say for two weeks quarantine, a week strict quarantine. Like that means you're not going to the grocery store. You're not going out for walks. You're not doing anything. If you have someone that lives in the house with you, you're sleeping in separate bedrooms. If they're leaving the house, like you pretend like you have the virus and you are isolating yourself from everyone and that is really like you said the only way to really guarantee not even guarantee but ensure that your risk is very low right and going into surgery and your risk will be very low that's the thing is that if you go that way then you're going to eliminate this really as much as possible and and part of our process for getting them into surgery is we have a COVID 19 pandemic surgical consent that essentially says we're going to do all the stuff we're going to keep you safe we're going to tell you to to follow these directions and there's still a chance that during this pandemic that you know you could touch the a doorknob on the way right. into the surgery right. that we can eliminate the risk completely yeah. so by really being smart though i think we can do elective surgeries and i i don't think it's going to be this you know immense problem but it is new and so it's scary to people it's scary to practitioners to nurses to to patients Okay, so we have a whole new protocol we got to go with. That that's fine. So let's do that and let's get you your your operation so that we can get it done in a in a very safe and effective manner. Right. Right. And so I think once we've established, you know, that we've gotten the patient as optimized as we can going into surgery, then you can talk about what do we do once we have the patient coming in for surgery, the day of surgery. What do we do? And so that's where we can start talking about you know, bringing the patient in exactly right before they're supposed to have surgery. You know, usually it's an hour before surgery or two hours, whatever they tell you. We're not keeping them in waiting rooms. No. We're not having them exposed to anyone else. They come in at their scheduled time and they're the only person there in the surgery waiting room. Right. And I think one person with them, a family member, not, you know, a friend that flew in from Albuquerque to help out in Beverly Hills. No, this has to be only known commodities and you just can't have a waiting room filled with people that's not happening anymore you can wait in your car and we'll call you in when it's time and then we're good to go and i think that's going to be the that's the standard and i I think also once you come in everybody wears masks Mm -hmm. everybody wears gloves you do symptom check you take their temperature you know you question them again about their contacts and whether they have had any symptoms over the past two weeks and then once you've ruled out any symptoms and any fevers then you take them to the operating room and it's standard protocol in terms of what the staff and the anesthesiologists do in terms of their own protective equipment right i think the anesthesiologists we're putting these people to sleep. They they could consider face shields and and sure. uh, N95 95 masks, masks or or even a KN95. Yeah. I think that even the triple ply masks that uh, are are also effective. I think there's a, you know, I I hear people saying they're going to wear the N95s and a surgical mask and a face shield. And I was like, well, at that point, then don't don't even go into surgery. Like, I mean, like, what are you doing? Like, how are you even going to see what you're doing? Like, you have yeah. to be able to operate. Right. So, I mean, from my standpoint, I'll probably, you know, I'm going to do some different things. I am going to pack the nasopharynx with a betadine saline soaked uh, throat pack for my nose patients. Because for me, the rhinoplasties are the highest risk procedures yeah, we're doing. For sure. The coronavirus 
lives in that neighborhood. <laughs> That's their spot. They they just you know they move in. They're like, what's going on? And they just hang out there. And so I don't want to like have coronavirus spraying all over the room. Yeah. Again, I'm going to assume that we've done everything that we can, and still. You have to always assume, well, this patient probably has coronavirus. Right. So then we're going to swab out the nose with betadine, do it two times. We're going to throat pack. And then the big thing is we're not going to use any instrumentation that aerosolizes the the virus. And I, I have a lot of friends that love this piezoelectric bone saw, cutter. Yeah. yeah, it's a saw basically for the bones on the rhinoplasty. And I think that's that's going to aerosolize the virus. So probably not the best move go back to the standard chisels and the and the rasps and things like that so i'll i'll be careful with those kind of things but i think in the end you just have to you have to do everything that you can to try and keep everybody in the or from getting you know a big dose of of whatever is aerosolized in there we do have a uh, hvac system that will be on it'll change over the air in the room I think we'll do the intubation without anybody but who's necessary in the room to do the intubation. Obviously, that's usually uh, the anesthesiologist and the nurse. And then once everybody's intubated, then you know let the HVAC run, get everybody in there at that point, and uh, everybody wear the the protective equipment that you really need to do these. And, right. and again, it's not uh, it's not a guarantee. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have people who get sick and get infected and. And the odds are, you know, that nobody will die, but there, those are the odds. Somebody will, if if you do enough of anything, and there's a a point oh one percent chance of a problem. Well, enough of it happens, then that point oh one percent becomes somebody. Someone, right? That's right. And that's sort of how we're doing it at the hospital as well. You know, the anesthesiologist is usually the only one in the room. Maybe there's a circulator as well, depending on the complexity of the intubation. And then same thing for extubation. Everyone's out of the room when they extubate. And they don't they don't scatter and leave. They're literally right outside the door. So if there is an issue, all the anesthesiologist has to do is say, you know, wave his hand and yell, say, hey, and they can come right in and help. So it's not like he's on his own. Um, but... Other than that, it's yeah, pretty much standard PPE like you would do for any surgery and just make sure that you are safe. That's sort of all we can do. Yeah, I don't really want to get other viruses either. Yeah. So, you know, it's like we're, we're already doing this. I don't, you know, if my patient is HIV positive or hep C positive, I, I don't want to get, you know, hepatitis C. I don't want to get those things. And you assume always that always. everybody's got you it. You just assume, yeah, that's the whole point. Uh, that's, that's what I learned. I mean, I... I went to medical school from 1990 to 1994, and 50% of the hospital population at New York Hospital was HIV positive and had AIDS, and they were sick as all get out. And we took care of these patients regardless. It wasn't that you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, HIV's here. Now I can't you know, go to medical school. Right. No. And the same thing here with COVID-19. It's the, same, it's the yep. same deal. Like It's something new. Get used to it incorporate it into your armamentarium of how you think about things and then move on. And then move on. Which sort of brings us to, and what next? So you've done your surgery and the patients are recovering and they're at home. How do they take care of themselves and how do we as doctors take care of them going forward? And I think the same precautions apply. After you've had surgery, like we said, your immune system is down. You are right. sort of down for the count. So the same quarantine measures that you took before surgery, you have to be just as rigorous after surgery. And that means not going out, not seeing people, just staying away and isolating so that you can avoid getting the coronavirus after your surgery. Because again, Absolutely. that wouldn't be good. No, you don't want to get coronavirus after 
you've had surgery and you're trying to heal something up and right. now you've got fever and chill, like, yeah. no, that's no good. And, and it's going to compromise your result. And obviously there's that outside chance that it's, you know, a trip to the ICU and it's life threatening right. and all those things. Right. So we don't want you to wind up sick after surgery. So stay away from human beings. That's the easy, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the, the easy answer of this whole podcast. Right. If you can not get slimed <laughs> by somebody who's got coronavirus, you're golden. Yeah. No. I mean, because uh, that's the truth. It's like this thing is a human contact deal. Everyone's like, oh, you get it off of, you know, doorknobs and all that stuff. I, yeah, maybe. I, I think it's human contact. Yeah. And uh, that's the majority of the way that this this thing's getting bounced around. So, you know, just be aware of that. Be smart. Be part of the answer to your own safety if you're the patient. And as the doctors and the team and the team you need to be thinking for your patient and for everybody else. And if everybody, just like we have a sterile conscience in the OR, if you have a, a conscience about the fact that there's a pandemic, then it makes you allow, it allows you to be able to really treat people in a way that you're going to minimize their chances right. of having any problem. Because right. you got to do the surgery and you got to take yeah. care of all the other things because you can still get surgical infections. You can still have you know problems with, you know, pulmonary emboli and things like there's all these other issues with surgery too you got to make this into just another thing that we deal with and move it along right there's risks with all surgery risks are never going to go away this has just been sort of added to the list you know you could always That's say right. well i don't want to have surgery because i'm worried i'm gonna get the coronavirus guess what the coronavirus is here it's not going anywhere That's right. it's going to be here and until we get a vaccine it's here so we have to find ways of dealing with it and moving on and factoring it into the risks you take every time you have a surgery, every time you get in a car, every time you fly a plane. This is just going to be added to that list of possible, possible, possible. That's right. And, and for most people in the very, very vast majority, and I said it much better that time, <laughs> th this is going to be a non-issue. And you're going to just sure. have to understand that the other the other risks of surgery are much more real. They're still and there. Yeah. They are still there. You know, that's that's the part that, uh, you know, we, we always go through that. And the reason that we do is because things happen in surgery. And it's, uh, again, most people have, you know, a easy, smooth sailing course through their operation. And they might deal with a little wound thing or a little this or a little that. That's all part of it. But there are some people that do have major problems and, and you tend to hear about them because they are so rare. Right, right. Cool. Well, Dr. Ravello, I think we had a very comprehensive uh, roundup on the coronavirus. Is there anything we left out that we want to make sure we nail down? I think we hit it. Yeah, there will be more. There will yeah. be more developments as we go through. But for now, it's the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the 90210. <laughs> The Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast is brought to you by Rock Spa. This is MediSpa, located both in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach, providing services such as Botox, fillers, lasers, and all therapy, as well as hydrofacials and all the aesthetic products you could possibly need. It's run by the medical director, me, Dr. Jay Calvert. Rock Spa Beverly Hills is located at 120 South Spalding Drive, in Suite 340, Beverly Hills, 90212. The phone number there is 310-777-0496. And Rock Spa Newport Beach is located at 1617 Westcliff Drive, Newport Beach, California, 92660. The phone number there is 949-640-1111. You can go to their respective websites, 
rockspanewportbeach.com or rockspabeverlyhills.com. Rockspa was created to help my patients maintain their aesthetic beauty in between whatever operations they have throughout their lives. It's something that allows patients to come in, get their facials, skin treatments, take care of all the Botox fillers and lasers that they need to keep up their beauty. And if they've invested in any of the aesthetic operations I perform, it's the way to maintain those operations. If you mention this podcast, you will get the member's pricing for your hydrofacial. The Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast is the way that Dr. Ravello and I talk about the issues that are important to us in plastic surgery. But there's nothing better than getting to take care of our patients and do plastic surgery. Our practices are located in Beverly Hills, and I also have a satellite office in Newport Beach. You can learn about my practice at drcalvert.com, and you can reach my office by calling 310-777-8800, and that will get you an appointment either in Beverly Hills or at the Newport Beach office. My practice is located in Beverly Hills. Our office phone number is 310-954-1355. You can also contact us directly through the website, which is rovelloplasticsurgery.com. We look forward to seeing you in the office for some aesthetic tune-ups.